Hi, I'm Kira from Katona, New York. I'm Russ from Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. The Style of Young America is an independent production. Supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Prodigy, is one of the fathers of hardcore hip-hop. As a teenager in the early 1990s, he and his partner, Havoc, found an East Coast answer to the emerging West Coast gangsta sound. As Mob Deep, their tone was dark, eerie, and minimal, and their lyrics, cold and brutal. Let's take a listen to Prodigy's opening verse from Shook One's Part 2, the epical single from an epical record, The Infamous. I got you stuck off the realness. We be the infamous, you heard of us. Official Queensbridge murderers. The mob comes equipped for warfare. Beware of my crime family who got enough shots to share for all those who want to profile and pose. Rock you in your face, stab your brain with your nose bone. You all alone in these streets, cousin. Every man for themselves in his land, we be gunning. And keep them shook crews running like they supposed to. They come around, but they never come close to. I can see it inside your face, you're in the wrong place. Cowards like you just get their whole body laced up with bullet holes and such. Speak the wrong words, man, and you will get touched. You can put your whole army against my team, and I guarantee you it'll be your very last time breathing. Your simple words just don't move me. You're minor, we major. You all up in the game and don't deserve to be a player. Don't make me have to call your name out. You cool as featherweight. My gunshots will make you levitate. I'm only 19, but my mind is older. When the things get for real, my warm heart turns cold. Enough nigga deceased, another story is told It ain't nothing really, and yo done sparked the Philly So I can get my mind off these yellow back niggas While they still alive, I don't know, go figure Meanwhile, back in Queens, the realness and foundation If I die, I couldn't choose a better location When the slugs penetrate, you feel a burning sensation Getting closer to God in a tight situation now Take these words home and think it through Or the next rhyme I write might be about you Sonny, cause ain't no such things as halfway crossed Prodigy was recently released from three years in prison on gun charges, and he's just put out an autobiography called My Infamous Life and a new free digital record called the Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson EP. Prodigy, welcome to The Sound of Young America. How are you? How you doing, man? Thank you. I'm doing good. I'm doing real good. I usually like to start off with something happier than this, but one of the key issues in your book and in your life is that you have sickle cell anemia. Um, and I, I wonder if you could, before we start getting into the story of your life, just tell us what, I mean, for starters, what, what that is. Well, sickle cell anemia is an hereditary disease that's passed down from, you know, your mother and father. And basically it's like a rare blood disorder where your blood cells change from a round shape, you know, normal round blood cell shape to a sickle shape and they start interlocking with each other and it causes clotting and it causes pain wherever that happens at. And it's like a domino effect. It just spreads out throughout your body and um, the pain increases and, uh, you know, it, pro- it gets progressively worse uh, if you don't take care of it right away. As soon as you feel the pain, you're supposed to get go to the hospital or, or take pain medication for it. What's the first time that you remember having a sickle cell attack? You know, I was real young, so I, I really didn't have a full understanding of what I was going through. Um, you know, I knew I had, I had something. I, you know, I wasn't like other kids because my parents they told me, you know, you got sickle cell, and you know, all I know, I was just 
and crazy pain, and that's all I knew. You know, it was just that pain, and I want to get better. I want to feel. I want to feel good. How did it affect your life, especially as a kid? It made me a real angry kid. Um, you know, I was angry at God. You know, and I used to sit there and pray to God, like, please take this pain away. But it's like, you know, it it it, it was nothing magical happening. Nothing. It was nothing there. Basically, I felt like uh, my prayers were, were not being answered. You know, and it, it it made me real moody. I had like an attitude problem um, growing up as a young child. You grew up in uh, an interesting circumstance. You sort of grew up in in a bunch of different worlds all at once. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your uh, uh, grandmother and grandfather with whom you spent a lot of time and and also about your mother and father. Yeah, my grandmother and my grandfather, they actually met at the Cotton Club in Harlem. Um, My grandmother was one of the first Cotton Club dancers. And my grandfather was a jazz musician, and so he played in the band at the Cotton Club. So, you know, that's how they met, and um, they got married and all that. And my, my grandmother actually started a business in, her, at the, in the basement of her home in Jamaica, Queens. She started a dance school business. And my grandfather, you know, he, he had a lot of jazz albums. He was in a big band with uh, Quincy Jones. He's actually a member of the, the Jazz Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's in the Jazz Hall of Fame, and, you know, growing up, I just saw a lot of uh, famous people come into the house to see him, like, you know, famous jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, uh, uh, Frank Foster, you know, di- just different people like that. And, um, yeah, that's I grew up around all of their show business. Your folks had both also been in show business and in the music industry themselves. Your uh, father sang with a doo-wop group called The Chanters, and, and your mother was a member of the uh, Phil Spector group, The Crystals, although she she joined shortly after they um, had their biggest string of hits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was definitely crazy, you know what I mean, to, to see all the hear all the stories, you know, that, that my mother used to tell me about, you know, touring with with the Supremes, Diana Ross, and the snakes in the industry, like that, that'll try to rob you, you know, for your credit and, and your money and all that. She worked for Phil Spector, who's basically one of the all-time kings of the questionable music industry guys. Yeah, exactly. So she's been through it, you know, she's been through doing a lot of work and getting a little for it. You know, and my father, you know, he was in that group, the Channers. They had a couple of lukewarm records, but uh, I think they never really took off like that, you know what I mean? But they still had the experience in the music industry. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the whole the whole business was just always in my family, and I grew up around that. And um, I saw a lot. I learned a lot at an early age about show business, about how to put on a show, about how to, you know, the, um, how the behind the scenes works to put something like that together. Your dad was uh, a heroin addict, um, and you write in the book about finding out about that. Um, how how old were you? I had to be about maybe around seven, 
Yeah, around six, seven years old when I started noticing certain things about my father. Um, You know, just little strange ways, you know, staying in a bathroom too long, going to a friend's house and telling me to wait in one room while they go in another room. And just little strange things I started noticing. And then, um, you know, he finally came out and told me you know, one day, of what he was, what he was going through, and what he was doing. So that was, you know, that was kind of crazy. That was kind of crazy to, to to see all that, and and just to, for him to tell me that, I was just like, wow, okay, uh, yeah. Did you even understand it as a as a little kid? Yeah, I did. I did understand um, when he explained it to me, and. You know, other family members explained it to me also what was going on. So, uh, yeah, they they explained it to me in a way where I I definitely understood what was happening. I want to play this uh, verse that you wrote about your dad in a song from one of your more recent solo albums. The song is called Veterans Memorial Part 2. Uh, let's hear a little bit of it. Strike me down if I'm lying. I miss my pops. All I got is lonely teardrops and memories of him teaching me to hurt people with my bare hands and how to shoot people. I remember me and him stuck a jewelry store. He did the sticking. I was in the getaway car. Pops came out with a big bag full of jewelry. We had a high speed chase with Nassau County. I was eight years old. My pops was drama. They locked him up and sent me home to mama. I miss the dad. I wish the dad would please come back. I need your help. And everybody that's got somebody to see. So I know you feel the same. Spirit go live through me. That was a verse from my guest, the Grammy Award-winning rapper, Prodigy. He recently released an autobiography, My Infamous Life. So this is a scene that you also describe in the book, and it's something that I could... You know, I can wrap my head around the idea of your dad, you know, just being a a general, low-to-mid-level criminal about town, you know, doing the occasional robbery and so forth. But I can't imagine the idea of him packing his kid in the passenger seat while he does it. Tell me about what was what was going on with your dad that he he robbed this jewelry store and you know dropped the bag of jewelry in your lap in the passenger seat of the car. You know, my father he was a drinker too. He was a real heavy drinker. Like his favorite drink was snaps. You know what I mean? Peppermint snaps, peach snaps. He loved all that. So I, the only way I could really make sense out of it is I think he might have been drunk when, that day when he did that, you know, because it just it just seemed like that's not normal, you know what I mean? Like why would you do that? And he was a he was an intelligent individual, so I think maybe he was drinking that day, and um, he just took it a little overboard and forgot who he was with, you know what I mean? And, didn't think about it until after he did it. Like, wow, I'm bugging right now. It seems like with with your your sickle cell and you being small, um, especially as a kid, and having to be in different worlds at the same at, at all these different times. Your your mom uh, uh, lived in more than one place. You. Uh, went to a, a variety of different schools that 
you had to be tough from when you were very young. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, I couldn't always get involved with the activities with all the other kids because if I overwork my body, it would trigger my pain, you know. So there were definitely times where, you know, growing up in Long Island, um, in Hempstead, where, uh, you know, like other kids wanted to challenge me. You know what I mean? They wanted to, you know, push my butt, see if they could push my buttons or whatever and see, you know, if I could fight or or what have you and things like that. Taking my kindness for weakness or taking my quietness and laid back style for weakness, you know. Um, yeah, and I've been dealing with that for basically all my life. You know what I mean? When I was young, all the way up until today. So I got I got into a few fights when I was a young kid, when I was like you know around that same age, six seven years old, and um, you know my my father was a a karate sensei, he had his own karate school, and he told me some a few things about fighting, and uh, he would always push me, and make me fight people, you know what I mean? He was like go 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 fight that kid, you know don't don't and take a knife with you too, just in case you know he. Don't let him. Don't let him beat you up. You don't stab him. Well, my father would tell me things like that, and that's what I did. You know what I mean? I would go outside and he would make me fight, and I would beat the kid up because I ain't trying to get beat up on my father. You know what I mean? I'm a father. I was scared of my father. Yeah, that's how I was growing up. Um, the sickle cell, you know, it definitely made it where, you know, I had to prove myself a little bit. We'll be back with more with Mob Deep's Prodigy after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by VG Kids, printers of t-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at VGKids.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Prodigy, a Grammy Award-winning rapper who's a member of the duo Mob Deep, a group that helped establish the East Coast hardcore hip-hop sound. He recently released an autobiography, My Infamous Life. You started when you were about 11, 12 years old, getting into two things, and those were hip-hop and crime. Um, As you describe in the book, just kind of a real grab bag of various low- to mid-level crimes. Tell me a little bit about where you were at at that point in your life when you were like 11, 12 years old up until you were 13, 14 years old. When you were 14 years old, you bought your first car. What was going on with you in in that period of time? That period of time was like probably my most rebellious time. Um, You know, my my pops, he uh, he was on the run for a while. 
And so he wasn't around for the discipline, you know. And, you know, my mom, she tried her best. But I was, like, hanging out in the street, making new friends. I was, um, you know, I went from moving, I went from living in Long Island to moving to Queens and left Rack City. Um, so I was making new friends in different neighborhoods and learning new things. And, uh, yeah, I started hanging out a lot, you know, with my new friends. And we started, you know, getting into a little more mischief than ever before. I started selling drugs when I moved to Queens, um, you know, because I, I noticed that everybody in that neighborhood out there, you know, they were doing that. And most of them were my friends, you know what I mean? So I wanted some of that, too. I wanted to get some of that easy money and had the nice clothes and the, and the jewelry that everybody uh, saw was having. And uh, so I started doing things like that. And I, I actually got caught. Like the second day of me selling some drugs, you know, being a crack dealer or whatever. The second day I was out there selling some drugs, I got caught by these by these plainclothes detectives. And they, they actually let me go. They took the drugs from me. And they let me go because I looked at, I was like 12 years old, around that age. And I looked at like I was seven, probably like eight. Like I looked at real little and young, you know what I mean? So they were like, what the hell are you... He was like, yo, give me that. Get out of here. Go home, yo. So, you know, that that kind of shook me up. I was scared after that to to, uh, to go out there and sell some drugs after that. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to just chill from that. Yeah, but, you know, I was getting into other troubled things. You know, just started drinking uh, beer, started smoking weed. And uh, at an early age, you know what I mean, I'm 12. Um, and... Uh, you know, just hanging out real late, going to parties, you know, having sex, just 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 out there and, and getting in all kinds of trouble. Where I was uh you know, just manipulating things into my advantage, you know what I mean? Um, you know, rob a few people or do whatever we had to do, you know, or whatever we thought was fun to do, you know, to get some money. That was my badass age. <laughs> How'd you get into MCing? Um, around that same time, you know, um, there was this there was this uh, producer from Queensbridge named Marley Maul, and he had put out this album called In Control. And um, it was a compilation album of different Queensbridge artists and artists from Queens and maybe a couple artists from Brooklyn. And um, one of the most popular songs on that album were, was uh, a song called The Symphony. So when I heard that, that was like the first song that really made me stop everything. Like, whoa, this song is this song is like incredible right here. Like the lyrics that they were saying and the beat, it made me look at rap different. Like, hold up. This is something really that I really want to do with myself. Like, I want to do that too. You know, I wanted that. You know, so I decided to chase after that. Now, you started uh, sort of working towards a career as a professional musician when you were still a, a, like a relatively young teenager, in part because you had these family members who had some connection in the music industry. And so 
they knew what the deal was. They knew how someone becomes a recording artist. And uh, the first song that you ever uh, got that was uh, that you ever recorded that was released was when you were like 15 or 16 years old. And I, I want to play a little bit of it. Um, it was on the Boys in the Hood soundtrack uh, on a song by an R&B group called High Five. It's called Too Young. As time passes, I flow with the swiftness, G. Showing you all that I'm with this continuous flavor. You don't want to save up. And those without no clout, why the fuck for this dope You ask who wrote this, the way goes, the Aussie, and I do quote this. Doctors evaluate, place we eliminate. Create the great, then I wait as I meditate. For those who can't keep up with the dope rhyme, huh. I waste no time. For this, they won't come to return the life of some. So for now, I guess we're just too young. When do you feel like, as a teenager, or did you feel all along like you became you as an MC? You got past that point of wanting to be Cool G Rap or wanting to be Craig G and started projecting your own real self onto, onto, onto your uh, songs. Um, I had to be... Right after that, that Boys in the Hood soundtrack came out. I was uh I went to go visit my father while he was on the run in California for another crime he had committed. And uh while we were out there, Boys in the Hood actually was was releasing to the theaters and it came out. So we went to to see it on the on the um I think it might have been the premiere night. And we in the movie theater watching it, and I had no idea about movie soundtracks. I didn't know how it works. I didn't know they was gonna play it in the movie or, or none of that. So while we sitting there watching the movie, the song comes on, and me and my pops just jump up like, "Yo, we got a song in the movie! A song in the movie!" You know what I'm saying? Like, we were real excited about that and hype. Like, that felt good, and it felt like I accomplished something. Like. And I really got to see the results of trying. You know what I mean? When you try hard enough to get at something, you know, it feels good when you see some results. You know what I mean? That makes you want to go further. You had some seriousness of purpose about you. It seems like one of the big turning points in your career is you had already hooked up with Havoc, who who you knew from school and was a talented MC and became your partner in what became Mob Deep, originally called... Uh, poetical prophets. If I'm not, if yeah. I'm not misremembering yeah, that, that's it. And um, you were you were trying to get you were trying to get a deal for this group, essentially by hanging out around record companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mainly Def Jam. <laughs> like hanging, when I say around, I mean like literally, like down at the bottom of the stairs or whatever, or right outside the front door. Exactly, right outside. You had like a demo tape that that I guess you had on a Walkman, and tell me about the tell me about when you finally got someone to listen to it who who got excited. Yeah, so what we used to do is we, you know, we made this fifty song demo tape when me and Havoc first met. We went ahead and made a demo tape, and um, that's good because every A and R is going to want to know that uh, a new artist can record forty nine or more songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. We made all these songs. It's crazy when me and Harry made songs. We just make a lot of songs for some reason. Ever since the beginning, you know, when we first met, 
So anyway, we had this 50-song demo, and our next step was, all right, how are we going to get it to be heard? So we looked at the back of the albums, and it had the address to all the labels. So we was like, all right, which one are we going to pick? So we picked Def Jam to go to first, because that was like the best thing popping at the time. So we took the address down, and we cut out of school, hopped on the train, and went down to Def Jam. So now we're standing outside, because, you know, they're not letting us in, of course. So we standing outside, waiting for artists to come out. You know what I mean? Waiting for whoever walks out this door, we're just going to stop them. I'm like, yo, could you please give our music a listen real quick? You know what I mean? We, we rappers. We got some music. We trying to get signed to Def Jam. So we did that for a while, and a lot of people was just like, oh, I ain't got time for that shorty. Uh, you know, they walked away. Some people just looked at us and ignored us and kept walking. Um but then it's uh, one of these rappers that was uh, affiliated with Def Jam at that time was a rapper by the name of Q-Tip. And he was from a group called the Trial Core Quest. So Q-Tip actually stopped. And he was like, all right, I'll give y'all a listen. He put the headphones on and he listened to the music. He actually listened to a couple of songs out there. And then he took it off and he was like, you know what? I like you guys. And he's like, where y'all from? We said, we're from Queens. So he was from Queens, too. So he was like, all right, look, I'm going to bring y'all inside the office. I'm going to introduce y'all to some people. And, you know, I'm going to try to help y'all. So that was a major turning point for us. You know, we, we now we were inside. We had a connection, an uh, insider, you know what I mean? And, we, and he brought us and made us insiders now. Like, that's how we felt. When I was reading that part of the book, I was imagining Q-Tip, like, this is the early 1990s. I was imagining Q-Tip as as tribe dressed in 1991 or 1992 in like uh, African print baggy cotton pants and a dashiki yeah. and all that kind of thing. And you, I was imagining from, I was imagining my image of you maybe from like the Shook Ones video, which came a couple years later, um, but a little skinny kid in... Um, in you know in the street fashion of that time which was more about looking grimy than anything else and i was imagining the two of you going up there and what an unlikely pair you were yeah i mean you know our style wasn't too different at that time because at that time you know like our name was poetical prophets you know what i mean so uh you know that's that's like was the little phase that we were going through you know, at that time, you had uh, this rap group called the X-Clan. You had this rap group, you know, the Trial Court Quest. So a lot of it was like a real conscious rap about, you know, the black culture and, and, and uh, you know, being aware of, of your culture and all that. So people were, were rocking you, African medallions and different stuff. Were you stuff. rhyming about that kind of stuff? Now, we weren't actually rhyming about that stuff. But that was like the style at that time. Like we were rocking that. We had African medallions. You know what I mean? Sometimes that was the trend at that time. That was the most popular trend was the African medallions and like, uh, you know, certain um, shirts and like African canes. Like a lot of people had that back in the days. So, you know, we wasn't too far from what Q-Tip was doing. You know what I mean? But we were definitely different. We weren't... Uh, we weren't that style, really. You know what I mean? We would just, you know, we would just throw on some of the, the trendy stuff at the time, maybe. You know what I mean? But that wasn't really our style, really. What we what we were about and what we 
represented in life and what our actions in life didn't really match that. You know what I mean? It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Prodigy. He's one half of the Grammy award-winning hip-hop duo Mob Deep. He formed the group with rapper-producer Havoc in 1992. You signed a record deal as a teenager and put out an album um, that flopped. Um, it didn't flop colossally, but it was not a success, and you got dropped um, not that long after it came out. Um, you know, you, you had some minor regional hits and, and so on, but you were essentially back at zero. And I wondered, as I was reading you, reading your book, whether you thought about whether you thought about doing something else with your life, or whether it was always the plan that it was going to be you and Havoc and Mob Deep and the music industry that was going to be your future. Yeah, when we when we um, put out our first album, and then we had got dropped. Cause it didn't do good. Uh, it was like devastating to us. We were like, no, no, this can't be happening. We were like, why did this happen? And we really had to recalibrate ourselves and really pull ourselves back down to earth um, and figure out why that just happened to us. And once we figured it out, you know, it was like, okay, this is how you fix it. You know what I mean? This is what we did wrong. And this is how you fix it. So that's what we did. We just got immediately got to work on fixing it because we knew this is what we wanted to do with our life. You know, this is the music that we love and that we live. And we ain't want nothing else. It was this or nothing. Like, that was our attitude at that time. It was this or nothing. We don't want nothing else. So we had to fix the problem. You ended up making this record called The Infamous, and, and we heard earlier Shook Ones Part 2, but let's hear a, another one of the most noteworthy tracks from that album, Survival of the Fittest. There's a war going on outside, no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You walking with your head down, scared to look. You shook, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks. They never around when the beef cooks in my part of town. It's similar to Vietnam. Now we all grown up and old and be on the cops control. They better have the riot gear ready. Trying to back me and get rock steady. By the Mac 1 double, I touch you and leave you with not much to go home with. My skin is thick, cause I'll be up in the mix of action. If I'm not at home, puffing live, relaxing. New York got a nigga depressed. So I wear a slug proof underneath my guest God bless my soul Before I put my foot down and begin to stroll Into the drama I built And all I'm finished beef You will soon be killed Put us together It's like mixing vodka and milk I'm going out blasting Taking my enemies with me And if not they scarred So they will never forget me Lord forgive me The Hennessy got me not knowing how to act I'm falling and I can't turn back Or maybe it's the words from my man Killer Black That I can't say So what's left an untold fact Until my death My goals will stay Alive. Survival of the fit, only the strong survive. Yo, yo, we live in this till the day that we die. Survival of the fit, only the strong survive. As I was revisiting the infamous, I was thinking about how different it felt from other things that were out at the time. And by the time this record dropped, there were other people talking about street life on record, you know, especially 
West Coast, uh, you know, at the time, so-called gangster rappers. Mm-hmm. But there was something very different about the tone of what you guys were talking about. In that, if I listen to um, a, a West Coast gangster record from the early 1990s, it's sort of gleeful in a way. And it's like an adventure. It's like a movie that's exaggerated like a, like a black exploitation movie or something. And when I listen to your records from that time, they're dark and I guess I would say kind of sad. They feel, they feel kind of sad to me. Um, yeah. I mean, it definitely had that element to it. Um, I think the reason, the reason behind that was because, uh, number one, you know, the environment that we were in, and then, um, you know, that we came up in where we, we spent our time at, you know, where, where we live, basically, is, um, you know, it's serious, man. There's a lot of crime, murder, drugs, poverty. It's crazy, you know. Poverty pushed people to do a lot of wild things. So, you know, coming from that, that whole element right there, and uh, also Queensbridge, you know, that project's right there. You know, that's the biggest projects in America. And it's like, it's something real special about that, that hood it, is that uh, a lot of trends, you know, came from that from that hood. We started a lot of trends. Like, we created a lot of uh, slang, uh, styles of dress, um, even the way our beats sound. You know what I mean? When we... When we really got down to it and mastered our sound and our, and our production skills, um, our sound was like real sinister and dark and, and uh, evil sounding almost. Because of that, you know, the lyrics that go on top of it, we're going to write something that matches the sound of the beat. And it's only it's only natural that it's going to come out matching that sound, you know, and, and the whole lifestyle that we were living. And... um and you know, of course, like the the new slang that people really never heard, and all the new styles, and all the stuff that you know we were doing that was basically like uh, unique to that neighborhood. You know that that gave it the whole feel like this is something new right here. You know they doing something new, like you know when Nas came out, and, and then the Infamous dropped after that. It was just like wow, was, these dudes is on, is on another level right here. I want to play a song that you recorded just a couple of years ago, um, sort of jumping forward in the timeline, 10 years or so. Um, It's from one of your solo records, and it's called Mac-10 Handle. Okay. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the place you were in when when you wrote this before we hear it. When I wrote that song, uh, I was just thinking of a concept where it was a revenge song, like somebody out for revenge, you know what I mean? It's payback time. Like, James Brown had that song, The Big Payback. Like, that's that's what this song was like. You know, it was a payback record, a revenge record. It's definitely more crazy than it is karate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's hear my guest Prodigy and his song, Mac-10 Handle. I sit alone in my dirty-ass room, staring at candles, high on drugs. All alone with my hand on the Mac-10 Handle. Scheming on you niggas. I sit alone in my dirty 
this room staring at candles, high on drugs, yeah. all alone with my hand on the Mac 10 handle, yeah, yeah. scheming on you niggas, by myself in my four-cornered room watching Hard Boy, I feel like I'm crazy, my brain on drugs, my bulletproof on run, flats, later tonight I'ma look for cuz, just ride through his hood and when I see that chump, I'ma jump out the truck and dump my gun, you ain't never been through it, so you scared of that kind of shit, hit me on the song and say, P-pop a lot of shit, too much of that gangster music, nah, this reality rap, I really go through it in interrogation rooms, I don't crack, nigga, I got none for ya, talk to my lawyer, shit, Nowadays it's hard to kill Be careful where you pull that trigger They got you on film They got eyes in the sky We under surveillance That on star on your car Track anywhere you been Gotta watch what I say They tapping my cell phone They wanna sneak and peek inside of my home I'm paranoid And it's not the weed In my rear view mirror These cars they follow me So I bust rights and lefts Lefts and rights Till I stop seeing those Impala headlights Then I circle my block To make sure it's smooth Before I go upstairs to my four-cornered room I sit alone in my dirty-ass room Staring at candles High on drugs So you were um, pulled over Making an illegal U-turn By uh, undercover police Um, They searched your car Found an unlicensed pistol And you ended up with a plea bargain That put you in prison for three years Um what kind of headspace were you in before you went into prison? I was in a bad, bad headspace. I was like heading in a in a, in a self destructive direction, man. Um, I was drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, um, real uh, arrogant and cocky, and just my priority wasn't wasn't together, wasn't in order. You know, I was just in a bad place, man, at that at that time. So me getting locked up was actually a blessing for me. I look at it as a blessing because it helped, you know, to uh, for me to see the light. Once you get the, you know, the, the rug snatched from under you, you know, I got my career, my family snatched from me, and, and I was forced to just sit there in that box for three years and think about what I did and how selfish I was and all that how foolish I was, you know, it made me really see things in, with new eyes, like, hold up, man, why was I doing that? What the hell was I thinking about? Um, I put all this in jeopardy, put myself in jeopardy, like, I got to change, something got to give, and I can't ever come back in this place again. So, you know, that's what it was. Three years is a long time. Did... Did those changes take a long time to take root in you? No, actually, I started on that, like, immediately, you know. My plan was, you know, clean myself out mentally, physically, spiritually, you know, come out physically stronger, working out every day and get my body in shape so I could be in, like, excellent condition and read a lot, get my mind sharp you know, work out that brain muscle and um, just, like, repair my relationship with God and, you know, my and, you know cleanse my spirit a little bit because uh, I needed that because I was always, like, real back and forth about the whole, you know, religion and God and, 
you know, that come from me just dealing with that pain when I was young and, and just growing up, living that particular street lifestyle. Um, you know, it brought my relationship with God into question many times. So I wanted to repair that and fix that. And that's what I went in and did. I did all of that. You know, I wrote many albums and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, the most important part was just fixing my my mind, body, and my soul, getting it together, like really getting it together where, you know, I could have a future and, and a successful future. You know what I mean? I want to play one last song. This is from the new EP that you just put out. Um, it's called Stronger. I, I, it's a beautiful song, a, uh, a really pretty sample from, from one of my favorite Nina Simone songs. The moonlight shines on the New York skyline. Midtown is lit up. The city is mine. As I drive across Queens Bridge, I see it clearly from my POV. This is fact, not theory. Yeah, that rapper got money, but that rapper can't walk through this concrete jungle because he doing it wrong. New York belongs to Don P. You can have the rest of the world. I'm good with these streets. Skyscrapers and housing buildings. I know about London, but I prefer Brooklyn. I know about Marseille, but I prefer Queens. And while you hire cops, I prefer my team. I got a powerful army. It's no need for a gun. You want hardcore rap? You fucking with the right one. This is maximum strength. It's no need for drugs. You want reality rap? Homie, you got the right one. I'm strong enough to take the pain. Tell me a little bit about, about writing this record. That record right there was like my way of showing people like that I could overcome any obstacle. I got a strong heart, strong-minded, strong-willed, that regardless of anything that happens, any obstacles in my way, I'm going to make it work. Prodigy, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Yeah, thank you. I definitely appreciate you having me. Prodigy's new book about his life is called My Infamous Life, the autobiography of Mob Deep's Prodigy. He also has a brand new digital EP, which you can download for free. It's called the Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson EP, and he's working on the next Mob Deep release right now. Wipe the dirt off my clothes when I fall down. I'm way too strong. This is my town, my subways and sidewalks. I done ran through these gutters like a tunnel rat, huh? Waist deep inside of the shit in the midst of the action where people get hit. Look, strong enough to take the pain inflicted again and again. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally, our producer, Julia Smith, our editor, Nick White. Our engineer in New York City was Bill O'Neill at WNYC. Our development director is Teresa Thorne. My dog's names are Coco and Sissy. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse at maximumfun.org. J-E-S-S-E at maximumfun.org. Visit us on the web at MaximumFun.org. There you will find not only free podcasts of every episode of this program, but also our other free podcasts like Judge John Hodgman, the only judge podcast hosted by a famous minor television personality and author. I presume it's a pretty small niche. It's all online and all free 
at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.